Take your Bibles with me this morning, and if you would, turn to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue our series, I Am a Church Member. The Lord continues to teach me things about myself. Sometimes he teaches me often through his word. Sometimes he teaches me about myself through the circumstances of life. Sometimes uh, he teaches me things about myself through my marriage or my my child rearing. Uh, sometimes those things are positive things. Sometimes those things, uh, probably more likely than not, are, are difficult truths that the Lord teaches me. I've learned a great deal about myself uh, through the lives of my children. I remember the feeling that some of you perhaps have experienced as well the first time that you saw a child put on your shoes, uh, playing, playing in the house and walk through the house wearing your shoes when they're about uh, two or three years old. And I just remember it was a very sobering thought because God did not speak audibly to me that morning. It seemed louder than that, all right? It seemed louder because what what he said was, for good or for bad, your children will develop many of their habits and character traits from following your examples, from following in your footsteps. It was a little bit of a sobering thought that day. I learned about myself when our children got old enough to say the word mine, I never had to teach them that word. It just came naturally. A a toy could be in the corner of a room. It hasn't been touched in six months. But one child picks it up and the other one says, mine. All of a sudden, that toy becomes the most important toy on the planet. Why? Because it's mine. But you haven't played with it. You haven't played with it in six months. It's mine. And my thought is, where do they get this kind of selfishness? And my inclination would be to say, well, it's obvious they got it from their mother. They got it from their mother. But, but then, before I can say it, my mind goes back to when Renee and I were first married. We'd been married for less than a year. We bought a first home, and this home had a formal dining room. It was a small formal dining room right off the main entryway of the house. And, and, and pretty quickly after moving into the house, we decided we were going to redecorate that room. We did not like the decor. And, and we found ourselves at odds. We were newly married. We found ourselves at odds over what this room should look like. Because I like bold colors. And my wife likes pastels. And... and She wanted wallpaper in part of the room, and I was okay with that until we started picking it out. And then then I discovered that I like stripes, and and she likes girly wallpaper. You know, floral designs and other nonsensical things like that. And, And eventually I found myself becoming very frustrated with my wife over this tiny room in our house Every time we'd go out to look for decorations, we would end up in a, in a dispute. And, I, and I, everything within me just cried out, submit, but, but I didn't say it. I didn't say it to her. Uh, you know, oddly enough, decorations were never very important to me when I was sharing an apartment with two guys. It never seemed to matter. Home was wherever I hung my hat. I, it didn't matter if it was decorated nicely or not. I didn't even know what nice decorations looked like. But all of a sudden, I found myself really wanting to get my way on something that had never been that important to me before. And, and the fact is, looking back, I realized that that room that my wife wanted to decorate was a room that I might actually sit in once or twice a year, at most. We, we just don't use a formal dining room. We're pretty laid back. 
And I might sit in it once or twice a year. And furthermore, my wife knows so much more about decoration uh, than I do. Which if she knows anything at all about decorating, she knows more than, more than I do. And so at the end of the day, why was it such an issue? And I can only conclude that it was an issue to me because it wasn't my preference. It wasn't what I liked. Just simple as that. Just simple as that. You know, unfortunately, what's true in the individual life of a Christian is often true in, in a church, in the church at large. Worship wars over not the content of the music, but the style of the music are very commonplace within our churches. Not just Baptist churches, but churches across the board. Endless meetings of inconsequential issues. Budgets that are inwardly focused and show little or no concern for a lost world. All those things are common today, and they're all indicative of people who elevate their personal preferences and desires to a level that's unbiblical. I found it ironic. I had several different ladies through the course of Vacation Bible School this week. Several different people asked me, what I was going to preach on this week. And so I told each of them, I'm preaching on uh, the, the third chapter out of Dr. Rayner's book. I'm a church member, and it's entitled, uh, I Will Not Allow My Church to Be About My Preferences and Desires. So I shared that with the three uh, people, and without exception, every one of them said the exact, they responded in exactly the same way. Ooh. Ooh. One of them happened to be my wife. And so I said, why did you say that? And she said, you know, in our church, I don't really know why I said it, because our members aren't like that. I just know that it's a big deal in most churches. You know, and she's right. It is a big deal in most churches, and in our church, it's really not like that. I want to share with you this morning, however, that I don't take that for granted, because I remember when it wasn't that way. I've been here for 24 years, and so I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. We have, we have quarterly business meetings today that typically last for about 10 minutes. They're, they're, uh, they're harmonious. They, they're usually very lighthearted. The questions that people pose are questions that are, that are raised with a godly spirit, a godly attitude. And yet I confess to you, to this day, I get nervous before a business meeting because of some of the things I have seen and heard in not only this church but other churches through the years I just confess it to you I still get nervous to this day I don't think we've had a negative vote on an issue in the last 10 or 12 years really but I still get I still get nervous not many years into my ministry as a singles pastor at the time I was I was very new on staff I was sitting in a business meeting and the church was voting on the budget for the upcoming year that time it had been pretty tight financially and it had been several years since the pastoral staff had received a raise of any kind and so on that particular year the personnel committee was recommending an across-the-board raise and through the course of the discussion in the business meeting one gentleman who I was friends with I like he's a nice man he stood up and said well I don't think they deserve a dime and he stormed out of the building now, if you think that sounds awkward, you should have been there. I, ironically, the following Sunday, I saw him in the hallway before church, and he, he looked at me with a big smile and said, well, hello, Brother Jeff, how are you? And I said, I'm poor. I'm poor, that's how I am. <laughs> I didn't really say that, but I confess to you that I thought it. I might as well have said it, right? Obviously, 
his personal preferences and desires were not being met, and he wasn't happy about it. Well, I'm, I'm thankful that our church isn't that way anymore, but in order to guard the unity of the church, I want us to look at several ways this morning that we can prevent the church from becoming about me and my preferences. I want us to read in Philippians chapter 2, the first four verses, a very familiar passage of Scripture, where Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, it was a church like many other churches in that it had some very strong characteristics, very strong traits, but it did struggle with some issues, and one of those issues was the issue of unity. Uh, Two weeks ago, our pastor, Dr. Cook, preached a, a sermon on being a unifying church member. This sermon is somewhat similar uh, in that the passage that we'll look at today has a lot to say about unity because unity is impossible if, if individuals focus on personal preferences and desires. It makes unity impossible within the body. And so I want to suggest four things to you this morning that will help us uh, to not allow church to be about personal preferences and desires. And the first is simply this. The church will not be about my preferences and desires when I remember my blessings in Christ. The church will not be about my preferences and desires when I remember my blessings in Christ. Look at verse 1 in in chapter 2. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Now, the word if can also be translated since. Paul's not saying uh, the word if in order to raise doubt. He's not saying, if you have these blessings, then make my joy complete. No, the assumption is that Christians can, in fact, experience these blessings. And so Paul lists four blessings that Christians have been given. He says, first of all, we've received encouragement from being united in Christ. What a blessing that we've received encouragement from being united in Christ. Sometimes I look around, I look around at our world, I look around at our culture, and I'm tempted to despair. I can become very discouraged by the circumstances of life. But Paul says that one of the blessings of Christian commitment is encouragement from the Lord. Because when I look and reflect on God's goodness and his sovereignty, I am encouraged. You see, ladies and gentlemen, our lives should not be characterized by discouragement based on our circumstances, but rather on the reality that God is on his throne, that regardless of the situation, that he is making all things work together for the good of those who love him, and that one day all the evil, all the pain, and all the struggles in this life will be made right. That encourages me. Secondly, Paul says we've received comfort from his love. We've received comfort from his love. This is a type of comfort that comes during times of sorrow. No one in their right mind wants sorrow. And yet there are things about God that I see more clearly during times of sorrow than at any other time. And when those times come, the Bible says he has given us as his children the Holy Spirit, also known as the Comforter to console us during times of sorrow. I've done funerals, dozens and dozens of funerals. It's appropriate for Christians to grieve when they lose a loved one because death is not how it was intended to be. 
And yet I can say time after time after time that I have witnessed that Christians grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve differently from the rest of the world because we receive the comfort from his love. Thirdly, Paul says we've received fellowship with the Spirit. Fellowship with the Spirit. Now, this most likely refers to the fellowship created by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit and God's people provide us with fellowship when we're lonely. And the reality is we all experience loneliness at times. It doesn't matter whether you're single, married, young, or old. At times, most of us, or I would say all of us, have experienced loneliness. Sometimes I was single until I was 33, and the temptation would be to, for me to think that when I get married, I'll, I'll never experience loneliness again. And yet, that's just not true. Uh, all of us experience times of loneliness. And when we think about the purposes of the church, we often think about the importance of, uh, of the purpose of worship or the purpose of uh, evangelism or the purpose of discipleship. And those are three very important purposes of the church, but we should not minimize the importance of fellowship as a, pur- a purpose of the church because that fellowship has been created by the Holy Spirit. He comforts us uh, by His Spirit and by God's people. And then finally, Paul says, we've received tenderness and compassion. We've received tenderness and compassion, the things that we need when we're hurting. Now, if I'm not experiencing these things, then I ought to ask the question, why not? Is it because I'm not going to the Lord for them? Is it because I'm not appropriating them? For example, if I'm not receiving the encouragement that I need, then perhaps I'm not reading the Bible regularly because the Bible is what God uses oftentimes to encourage me. Furthermore, I've found that the more compassion and tenderness that I show to others, the more compassion and tenderness I tend to receive from others. You see, these blessings that Paul lists are really the basis, the foundation for everything else that follows. How can I lay aside my personal preferences and desires? By remembering how blessed I am in Christ Jesus. And when we learn to live live life by seeing the bigger picture, Issues of personal preference begin to fall by the wayside. You see, these are the reasons that church shouldn't be about my preferences and desires because we've received these blessings. And so, by the way, if we don't like giving up our preferences and desires, then we should give up the blessings instead. We should give up the blessings instead. The church will not be about my preferences and desires when I remember my blessings in Christ. Secondly, the church will not be about my preferences and desires when I invest in the lives of others. Look in verse 2. Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So in this verse, he tells us that we're to be of the same mind. We're to be like-minded, some translations say. And the underlying assumption is that being of the same mind requires an investment in the lives of others because if I'm isolated from others, there is no one to be of the same mind with, right? And so he says, be of the same mind. In other words, invest your lives with people and then work at being the same mind, of the same mind. Well, what does that mean to be like-minded? Well, it doesn't mean that we have identical personalities or, or that we agree on every issue because not all issues rise to the same level of importance, Some issues are worth dying for. Some issues are of great doctrinal importance because it would would be to deny the very word of God if we were to back down on those issues. But but to be like-minded, when Paul is referring to this, 
we, we don't, he's not saying we have to be like-minded on every issue because not every issue rises to the uh, level of importance of a doctrinal issue. No, most of the issues that, are, that people fight about in Baptist churches concern the color of the carpet or the fact that the offering being collected in the service is at a different t- time in the service. You see, we can disagree on those types of issues and still be like-minded. And yet, that being said, most people who leave churches do not leave because their pastors have done something immoral or their preaching is unbiblical, but it's because they can't lay aside their personal preferences and desires. They, they want it their way. Another church has something better, the, uh, something new. And, and let me just say this, the same thing holds true for pastors. Pastors fall into the same trap. The average tenure of a Southern Baptist pastor is about three years, sometimes just because the members are selfish. But let's just admit it that the, the same is often true of pastors as well. We want what we want. We want it now. If anybody questions anything, even in the right spirit, they're labeled as a troublemaker. That's what occurs in many churches today. And so let me just say to those of you who are entering vocational ministry, if your attitude in the church is that you're the pastor and that the members should automatically follow you because the Bible commands them to submit to your authority, it's not going to go well for you. It's just not going to go well for you because the same Bible that does command Christians to submit to their leaders also instructs those leaders not to lord their authority over the people. And so that means we have to be patient with people, even when everything within us uh, wants us to do otherwise. Listen, ministry is a marathon, not a sprint. So be patient with people because they're a work in progress just like you are if if, if you're going to be a pastor. We're not going to agree on every issue and we don't have to. So then what does it mean to be like-minded? Paul says we're to have the same love. In other words, we treat treat everyone the same, which by the way is really a a fleshing out of the of the golden rule, that treating everyone else the way that, uh, that we would want to be treated, treated. He says we're to be united in spirit, which means to have affection for one another. And then finally, we're one in purpose. We're one in purpose. This is the kind of unity that exists when we're all going in the same direction, pulling in the same direction with a common goal, and that goal is to bring glory to Jesus Christ by serving him and by serving others. It's that common goal of investing, investing in the lives of others, being like-minded. Jesus said it this way in Mark 9, 35. He said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He must be last of all and servant of all. You know, it's been my observation through 19 years of ministry that those who complain the most often serve the least. I don't know why that is other than maybe they have more time on their hands. They're just not busy enough. But that's true in churches in general. I I don't look at our financial givers because I just don't want to know that, but but somebody has to. And so we have one lady in the church who who inputs giving records, and and she used to tell me years ago she she would get so frustrated because she would say, Jeff, the people who complain the most in the business meetings don't give a dime to this church. They don't give a dime for the ministries. Because they're, they're not invested. Now, I, I didn't want to know who those people were. But, but she had her point that she was making. And that is that those who complain the most often serve the least. But when you serve, you see, your, your attention is redirected from yourself to a greater purpose. And the ironic part is that when we remove the focus from ourselves, 
we actually experience greater joy. We actually experience greater joy. That's what, uh, that's what Jesus was talking about in Mark 9.35. When I think of the joy that comes from investing in the lives of others, and it comes as a result of laying aside personal preferences, I think about people like Rosalie Bennett. Now, many of you in this room don't know Rosalie. Some of you do. I would just simply say that to know her is to, is to love her. She's one of the most positive and upbeat people that I know. She's had some health problems recently, but I'm hoping that we can interview her in the very near future about her years at 9th and O. Uh, you see, Rosalie has been a member of this church for 81 years. 81 years spanning nine different decades. She, she has served in more ways than I could possibly mention, and she's done it in good times and hard times, and in the 20-plus years that I have known her, she has always, always demonstrated the love of Christ. I, I was just reflecting this week on what an enormous amount of change in the world, but also in this church that she has experienced, and I'm not naive enough to think that she possibly could have agreed or liked all of it. You just, don't, you just don't join a church and serve for 81 years and agree with everything. And in, in fact, if we're able to interview her, I'm going to ask her what some of the previous pastors have done that she didn't like. Uh, certainly, she hasn't disliked anything that we've done, but, but I'm going to ask her about the previous pastors. I can, I can just tell you there is not a sweeter person in this church. And, and if she has a conversation... For any length of time, she's going to tell them two things. Number one, she's going to tell them about Jesus. And number two, she's going to tell them about her church. I went, I went to visit her in the hospital recently. I was there for just moments when a, when a girl walked in, a, a, a tech of some kind walked in, and barely had time to get a word out of her mouth before Rosalie uh, lit into her, telling, telling her, oh, I'm so glad that you're here. I mean, she... The whole floor, the whole unit of that hospital knew her by the time she left. And they all, they would send each other down to see her. You need to go meet that lady in room 436. She's a special lady. And so the lady had, the tech hadn't been in the room for two minutes and Rose Lee was said, oh, this is my pastor. And let me tell you, what, we, we attend Ninth and Old Baptist Church and it is a great place. And the nurse just had to stand there and wait uh, to get her information until Rosalie was finished with her with her witnessing, and it was a it was a great it was a great time. You know, if a church is going to thrive, it needs people like Rosalie Bennett to invest their lives in it for the long haul. There's not many of us here that are going to be here 81 years. Uh, I've been here 19 years as a pastor, about 23, 24 years as a member. I'm not going to make it 81, folks, so you all rest, rest easy. You're not going to have to put up with me for 81 years. Most of us aren't going to make it for 81 years. But we need people who will invest their lives for the long haul, for good, for bad, because that's how the church thrives. Number three, the church will not be about my preferences and desires when I maintain a spirit of humility church will not be about my preferences and desires when I maintain a spirit of humility. Paul says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now Paul describes humility both positively and negatively in this verse. Negatively, he says that we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or, or empty conceit. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with ambition. In fact, if a person does not have ambition, that person is a lazy person. Paul's not condemning uh, ambition in general. He is condemning and warning us about selfish ambition. In other words, we're not to do what we do in order to get glory or to get our way. And when that is our primary motivation, it's in fact empty. It becomes empty because the focus is on ourselves and not on the Lord, and so it's never enough. It's never good enough. This, this type of person who does things out of, out, of, uh, out of selfish ambition always needs the accolades of others to tell them what a great job they're doing because they do not find their rest in Christ. They do not find their importance in Christ. They find it based on what others say about what they're doing. Paul says avoid that, avoid avoid selfish ambition. But positively, he says, instead of doing things from selfishness or empty conceit, we're to act in humility, regarding one another as more important than ourselves. Now, Paul's not advocating that we have a poor self-image, that we consider ourselves completely of no value, because that's an insult to God. That's an insult to God. We've been created in the image of God, and therefore every person has intrinsic value. So that's not what he's saying. Does he mean that our personal concerns are irrelevant? Absolutely not. He does not mean that at all. But it does mean that unless those concerns are based on biblical principles, there shouldn't be too many mountains worth dying on. Perhaps it's just my age. But I'll just, I'll just confess that the things that, the things that were worth fighting for when I was newly married or when I was a first-time parent or when I was new in the ministry, it, it crosses the, the spectrum. The things that I was willing to fight about in those days just don't seem as important anymore. Maybe I just don't have enough fight in me, and so I've got to save it for the really important stuff. But I, I would argue this morning that there shouldn't be too many... Listen, if every mountain is worth dying on, there's a problem. There's a problem. Well, how do we do that? How do we consider others better than ourselves? The, the key is found in verse 4 when he writes, Do not merely look out for our own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. It means we're to surrender our preferences and our convenience for the good of others. Now, one of the things that I've discovered about myself through the years is that, when, is that wanting things my way is not only selfish, but it's also very closely related to pride. It's very closely related to pride because when it's all about my preferences or my desires, it becomes inconceivable to me that there's another valid point of view. It's my way or the highway because somebody surely must be wrong and it certainly couldn't be me. And that's pride. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says it this way. He says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We, we need to remember that when we insist on having our way on issues of preference, whether it's in the church, the home, or the workplace, that's a sign of pride, and we're setting ourselves up for the discipline of God because God is opposed to the proud. On the other hand, when we find ourselves being frustrated because things aren't going the way we would prefer, in our better moments, in our better moments, we should give thanks to the Lord in those times because God is giving us an opportunity to display humility. God has given us an opportunity to lay aside our needs and our desires for the needs of others. As I said earlier, we had a, 
just the, the greatest vacation Bible school that I can ever remember. But that being said, it's very hard for the workers. By the middle of the week, as I walked the hallways and talked to people, I heard workers saying things. I heard them spurring each other on to good works. And here's what they were saying. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Only a couple, we got two more days. We're halfway there. I got great joy from sharing with some of the teachers that I'm old enough to remember when Vacation Bible School lasted for two weeks. Oh, yes. Church on Sunday, VBS Monday through Friday. Church on Sunday, VBS Monday through Friday. Church on Sunday. It was horrific. It was, it was just horrific, and that was even as a child. And almost always, it's from 6 to 9 p.m. at night. 6 to 9 p.m. at night. And when I would share that, it was very amusing to see the looks on their faces. Because I had one person tell me I would leave a church over that. That would be a deal breaker. That would be a deal breaker for me. And, I, and, and you know, I thought the same thing. I just didn't say it. it. Listen, five days is enough. Our people have worked hard not only this past week, but for weeks and months leading up to vacation Bible school. But here, here's my point. As tiring as it is for the workers and the leaders, their attitudes were phenomenal. Their attitudes were phenomenal, even with some challenges. For example, we had teachers who had prepared to teach a particular grade. But we had so many children coming to VBS this year. We had so many children enrolled that Vanessa had to go to some of those individuals on very short notice and say, you know, I know you prepared to teach fourth grade. But could you teach a kindergarten class? Could you teach a kindergarten? We've got so many kindergarten students that we've got to have another class or we'll have to turn children away. So you go from preparing your lessons for fourth graders to preparing your lessons for kindergarten. Those are very different. Those are very different classes. You can't just wing that, folks. It's, it's not the same as you know teaching fifth grade versus fourth grade. Uh, the, the, these are like dog years you know, between kindergarten and fourth grade. Without exception and with no complaining, they all agreed. And let me just say as one of your pastors, I want to take the opportunity to say thank you. It's not much, but thank you. We don't want to take that flexibility for granted because it's just not that way in most churches. So thank you for putting the needs of others ahead of your own personal convenience and, and preferences. We, we may not often say it enough, but we are grateful for you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for your flexibility. Finally, number four, the church will not be about my preferences and desires when I live with the intentionality of Jesus. The church will not be about my preferences and desires when I live with the intentionality of Jesus. I didn't read verses 5 through 11, but I want to read them for us now because this is really who who it points to. The first four verses are actually telling us to be like Jesus. Verses 5 through 11 tell us what Jesus was actually like. Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul tells us in this passage that our attitude is to be modeled after the attitude of Jesus. Notice what Jesus did. He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he was God himself, but he never used his abilities for his own advantage. He emptied himself. He didn't give up. By by that, we don't mean that he gave up any of his divine attributes, but instead he took on qualities that he did not previously possess by becoming a servant. For example, Jesus never washed feet in heaven. But he became a servant on earth and he washed the feet of his followers. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice that phrase, humbled himself by becoming obedient. If you struggle with humility, start with obedience. The first step to humility is obedience. Jesus was intentional with his life. And notice the result, that God exalted him. God exalted him. And eventually, everyone, everyone, it doesn't matter their position in this life, it doesn't matter their level of importance based on our culture, eventually, everyone will bow the knee and acknowledge that he is Lord. And notice why they'll acknowledge him as Lord. In verse 11, it's to the glory of God the Father. It's to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was intentional about following the will of the Father for the glory of the Father. And that's a great way for us to live as well. For the glory of God. For the glory of God. That's why it's not about me. And that's why it's not about you. It's about him. So as we conclude this morning, let me remind you that we look to Jesus not only as our example, but as our enabler. See, I don't want to just look at this passage and say, well, Jesus is our example. We need to do this. The reality is, the reality is, we cannot live the kind of life that Scripture commands on our own. We need help from the only one who's ever done it perfectly. And this type of attitude, the type of attitude that says, I will lay aside my own personal preferences and desires for the good of the overall church, that type of attitude is possible only through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within Christians. It's produced by the Spirit and enabled by the Spirit, but it is maintained by the hard work of those who have intentionally decided that loving Jesus and loving others is more important than having things their way. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. It could be that you're a member of this church and that today during our invitation, you would simply ask God to help you to develop a spirit of humility. To develop a spirit of humility, to help you serve others that you might not normally associate with. That's one way to humble yourself is don't just reach out to those who are like you. Reach out to those from whom you have nothing to gain. Reach out to those that have nothing to offer you. Don't reach out to them because it's going to make you feel good. Reach out to them because God loves that person and God uh, gave his son to die for that person and that person has intrinsic value regardless of how much or how little you have in common with them. Well, perhaps you're here today and you don't have a church home and you'd like to invest your life in something bigger than yourself. 
We invite you to come during our time of invitation and allow us to tell you how you can be a member of Ninth and O Baptist Church. It's not a perfect church. It's the best church I know of. It's the best church I know of because of the people who comprise it. Or maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You know, the Bible says Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself to death on a cross. And he did it to pay the penalty for our sins. It's not hard. It's not complicated. You don't have to be a theologian to understand the plan of salvation. We had 31 children this week who simply by faith, by childlike faith, turned from their sins and asked Jesus to be their Savior and their Lord and committed their lives to follow him. And if you'll turn from your sin and place your faith in him, you can have your sins forgiven regardless of how great or how small those sins might seem in your own eyes. Those sins can be forgiven and you can find new life in Christ and you'll have meaning in life that you've never experienced before. If that's your need this morning, we invite you to come during our time of invitation. I'm going to invite you to stand with me at this time. Allow me to lead us in a word of prayer. Dr. Bruton will come and lead us in a song. If you have a need during this time, there will be men at the front, and they would love to be able to receive you and to, um, and to help you in any way that you need. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it challenges each of us because each of us, at the end of the day, each of us want things our way. I thank you, Father, that we serve in a church where even though we're all sinners, people love Jesus and they love him more than their own preferences and desires. Father, thank you. Would you work in this time of invitation to accomplish your perfect will in our hearts and lives? In Jesus' name. Amen. You have a need.